As many of you know, I've been working on a book um, tentatively called Transforming the Judgmental Mind. And if anyone has a better poetic title, I'm okay with that as my subtitle. <laughs> and that goes for people who listen to the talk. I've actually had some people you know, from other parts of the country who weren't here listen to the recording later and give me some suggestions. So I've been working on this uh, book for, well, in a way for quite a while, but in a really focused way for about the last four or five months, trying to work every day for three hours. And I've given a number of talks related to that theme. And today I'm not going to talk directly on that theme, but I'm going to talk about a theme which uh, plays an important role in working with judgments, and that's the theme of empathy and of the nature, the nature of empathy, empathy as a practice, and why it's so uh, important. I, I think empathy is essentially the ability, which is innate, to tune in to another person's experience and particularly to tune in to the person's emotions, the person's thinking, and the, uh, even often on a somatic level. I'll say more about that and give more, more of a definition later. Uh, but this, this quality of being able to tune in to others is a powerful quality. It's, um, again, it is innate, but in, in many ways it points to our interdependence in a radical way. It's a very simple way of talking about this often complex teaching of anatta, translated usually as not-self, often meaning we are not independent selves walking around. And when you actually look at empathy, and if you were to be an artist and give an artistic rendering of the reality of empathic resonance that we have uh, with each other, you would see something that did not at all look like a separate person here, a separate person here, a separate person here. You'd rather see the, re the main reality being this field of resonance with particular concentrations here and there and so forth. And so I think of empathy and the development of empathy that I call empathy practice. What's that? There, there's some kind of feedback, or just cut out. Cut out. If anyone is being empathic towards how I'm, how I'm feeling with a technical difficulty, I'm doing okay. So, <laughs> is that okay? Okay, very good. Um, so. There's this way that we can uh, appreciate this very simple cultivation of an innate natural quality as um, a very fundamental practice. And of course, we know that even though empathy is innate, it's actually, for most of us, shut down. And it's shut down a lot of the time to a significant extent. And it's really uh, for, for various reasons, which I'll get into. And that the cultivation of empathy is something that we can um, intend, that we can actually train and develop further 
and the capacity to tune into others and also to tune into ourselves. And so what I want to talk about is a little bit more about the importance of empathy, but talk about its nature, what gets in the way of empathy, how we practice it, what are the challenges of practicing empathy, and I'll give, I'll give some very concrete practices that we can work with in the next week and hopefully for the rest of our lives. But I'll give very specific uh, practices. And then I'll also point to some of what it looks like when empathy is developed to a high level. These are some of the great beings of our, uh, who have lived on our planet. And I'll hope to inspire all of us, including myself, by reading some of their words that point to kind of the higher development of empathy. It's interesting, I, I was thinking about empathy partly in the context of the election and the um, presidential so-called debates. And I, w- I was reflecting on that uh, point, and I was thinking of, there was a, an author, some of you may know, named Jeremy Rifkin, who wrote a book uh, several years ago called The Empathic Civilization. And he actually said that the movement to empathy being much more widespread is precisely what is needed on a large scale now to help us meet our challenges. And that actually, even though empathy is innate, it's not highly developed. And in fact, many of our institutions and ways of being and ways of thinking and ways of even raising children don't cultivate empathy and in many ways shut it down, right? And he was saying that actually a major development of empathy is needed for the next, for the shift in consciousness that would actually help us be able to respond to some of our systemic issues, some of our major systemic issues such as climate disruption, such as uh, racism, such as all the various isms, in many ways, these are, these are failures of empathy. And you can see a lot of the systemic social issues in that way. It was interesting also to uh, see, I don't know if anyone looked in yesterday's San Francisco Chronicle. How many of you read the San Francisco Chronicle? So, not too many. <laughs> I read it. Probably <clears throat> mostly for local news. And, you know, do you, have you ever noticed that the... Um, the sports section is way more detailed than national news. <laughs> I mean, I, think I, remember, I remember hearing Noam Chomsky once say that if the citizens actually attended to public events with the level of energy that they have for sports, there'd be a total change in the nature of things. Anyway, and so, and so but in, in yesterday's paper, there was a column by a, a new a columnist named Otis Taylor. I don't know if any... I, I like his column so far. He's just been writing for a few months. And he said this. It was, it was an article about relationships and actually profiling a, a person who talked about the primacy of relationships. And he said at the end of this article, I argue that the lack of empathy is the most pressing issue in America. And it's more compelling than national security threats bad trade deals, unpaid taxes, and deleted emails. And I think we can also see, from looking at the, particularly the presidential race, 
that there, there are many, many failures of empathy. You know, I mean, I think they're with both of the president, main presidential candidates. Uh, but we see uh, failures of empathy with, the, with uh, Mr. Trump in relation to large categories of the population, right? You can see what we could call as a failure of empathy in relation to, to women, in relation to people of Latino background, African-Americans, uh, Muslims, immigrants, and so forth. It's a generalized failure of empathy. But we also find it with the other candidate, you know, when we see comments like that famous one, basket of deplorables, right? I think she was pointing to behavior, which she questioned, but she didn't say it that way. She actually, uh, at that moment, did not have empathy uh, towards... Um, uh, towards the people she was criticizing, you know, many, all of whom um, probably are coming out of some kind of pain uh, and some kind of lack of feeling met or understood or seen or respected. Uh, and, you know, they may take uh, strategies, uh, which I don't agree with, but, but the, the failure of empathy is guaranteed not to meet them. Do you know what I'm saying? And, you know, and that every, you know, every right-wing movement of the last century has had people who had genuine pain. And they've chosen strategies where they make scapegoats of others, right? That's a common strategy. But the, the empathy would suggest a different way of proceeding to really connect. And I'll, I mean, I'll tell some stories maybe later related to that. So I like to think of uh, empathy, and I'll say more about this, as a practice which is in the family of Buddhist practices along with loving-kindness practice, compassion, practice of joy, uh, equanimity also related to gratitude and forgiveness. And I think that empathy is a particularly interesting practice. I'm going to be presenting it not just as a quality that we have and it's either there or not there, but something we can actively cultivate and has, have as an intentional practice actually moment to moment in our lives. And it's interesting because it's, a, it's pretty much an off the mat, out of the meditation hall practice. And it's a heart practice. And it's a practice which cuts through a thick sense of self. And it brings us really more in connection with our deeper nature of love and wisdom and brilliance in very ordinary ways. And so I'm going to try to make the case for why you should drop everything and cultivate empathy. You know, I'll, try to, I'll try to say that. Maybe, maybe you're already sold. <laughs> you know, but it's, so it's a very fundamental quality. And it's a relational practice. Most of our meditative practices are ones we do individually, often in isolation. And they're very beautiful. And you can bring them into... <clears throat> the flow of daily life, but they're essentially individual practices, and empathy can be something that we cultivate with others and even in uh, collaboration with others. So first, a little bit about the nature of empathy, a few definitions, and then I'll say a little bit about the biology, which is pretty interesting. <clears throat> um, so I'm defining empathy as the capacity to tune in to another person's experience, typically it's seen in three ways, uh, into the emotions, into the thinking process and the perspective of the person, and into 
the um, kind of there's often a somatic quality of empathy connected with someone's actions, and em- empathy can be felt at the at the body level as well. And it's interesting when you look at the research, they find that in some of the psychopathologies, um, people may have one kind of empathy but not another. They may be able to look into the thinking process, but they're totally cut off to emotional empathy. So it's quite interesting. Now, given that definition, and it's, it's interesting, empathy was actually a, a term that was coined in the beginning of the 20th century uh, by, I think, a British psychologist named uh, Titchener. This was at the beginning of the development of psychology at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century with William James and other people. And uh, the German psychologist had, had coined this phrase uh, called Einfühlung, which means feeling into. And there wasn't any similar word in English, and so they made up the word empathy as a translation of um, this German word, and it's gained currency. Uh, interestingly enough, so that in Germany now, they don't use the word Einfühlung, they use the word Empathie, which is a retranslation from the English. <laughs> so funny history. Um, and, uh, but it was, it was uh, coined in that way, and we, we've used it in different ways. Now, it's different than compassion in a few ways. It's similar to compassion in certain ways, but empathy is this tuning in to multiple dimensions of experience, whether they're positive or dimension. It's essentially a receptive capacity. Compassion, we understand in, in um, Buddhist context, as the tuning in particularly to distressing experiences or painful experiences or difficult experiences. And there's a similarity in that there's an inner resonance, you know, that the, you know, as we'll see with the biology, there is a um, resonance uh, with what are called the mirror neurons in the limbic system particularly of our brain. And similarly, it's interesting, there's also this resonant quality to uh, compassion, and the, the word compassion, uh, karuna, and some of the other, there's another related word, I think, uh, I think anukampa, which literally refers, the, the literal meaning is a quivering of the heart. Interesting, isn't it? It's a kind of resonance that we feel when there's suffering. And empathy refers to that capacity. If someone is distressed, who would walk in the back of this room and we'd see that person most or all of us would know in a split second that that person was in distress. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? You know, that's, this, uh, that's this capacity. So compassion is um, particularly focused on the distressing dimensions or the painful dimensions. Compassion also has an active aspect, that um, compassion is both receptive we resonate in a way which is similar to empathy, but it also is active. Compassion wants to help with the situation. And so it can be helpful to see that distinction with, uh, with compassion. Now, um, at the level of the brain, um, let me only read, I'll read a little bit from this book. Uh, if you don't know, it's a nice one. Rick Hansen, who often teaches here, wrote a book called Buddha's Brain. And you know what? Um, Buddha's brain is your brain. 
but he's um, developed it a little bit more. But it's the same basic material. Okay, so here's what Rick says about sort of the the research related to empathy. Powerful evolutionary processes have shaped your nervous system to produce the capabilities and inclinations that foster cooperative relationship. Building on this general sociability related. Hmm. Support empathy. Is it back on? I don't know what that is. The capacity to sense the inner state of another person, which is required for any kind of real closeness. Humans are by far the most empathic species on the planet. Interesting. Our remarkable capabilities rely on three neural systems that simulate another person's actions, that's more the body aspect, emotions, and thoughts. Networks in your brain's perceptual motor system light up both when you perform an action and when you see someone else perform that action, giving you a felt sense of what that person is experiencing. In effect, the networks mirror the behavior of others, hence the common term mirror neurons. For emotions, the insula and link circuits activate when you experience strong emotions such as fear or anger. They also light up when you see others having these same feelings, particularly people you care about. The more aware you are of your own emotional and bodily states, the more your insula and anterior cingulate cortex, the ACC, activate, and the better you are at reading others. This is where you can train this. You can train a part of the brain to be more empathic. In effect, the limbic networks that produce your emotions also make sense of the emotions of others. And then thoughts. Psychologists use the term theory of mind, T-O-M, to refer to your ability to think about the inner workings of another person. That relies on prefrontal and temporal load structures that are evolutionary quite recent. They appear during the third and fourth year of life and don't fully develop until the late teens or early 20s. So this makes sense of some of the challenges of uh, parenting. That the empathic capacity to take the perspective of another is not fully developed for many people until their 20s. <laughs> okay. So isn't that that's pretty interesting? So that's the basis. And um, we know, of course, that these natural capacities can be overridden you know, by social conditioning. And particularly, you know, how children are raised is going to develop what happens with that empathic capability. You know, that, um, you know, and there's been, there's been a lot of research into what what's, is often called attachment, right, in, in the, the um, nature of the uh, relationship between the child and the parents. And it's, uh, let me see where my notes are in this. Um, and there, there, if you look at what is required for healthy attachment, this is attachment in the psychological sense, not in the Buddhist sense of grasping. Okay? So, but in, in, in psychology, <clears throat> this understanding of healthy attachment, when you look at it, most of it's around uh, whether the parents were empathic or not. And if they weren't, all sorts of issues develop. You know, and I actually... There are some red flags for me when I look at the history of Mr. Trump. He may well have had 
a kind of upbringing in which empathy was not there. I've heard stories of his father being very authoritarian, even being a member of the Klan or going to Klan rallies, right? So we don't know. This is ultimately where we can lay a basis for compassion, but the, because the lack of empathy is often the result of certain kinds of child-rearing and failures of what would be called normal attachment. So normal attachment, ha, you know, healthy attachment, as they say, has these five qualities. And listen for these in terms of whether or not empathy is there. The first is that there's safety and protection provided by the parent, right? The second, and, and this is directly related to empathy, is that there's attunement, that the parent is attuned to the child, what the child, how the child is developing, where the child is developmentally, what is happening with the child's internal world. You know, when parenting succeeds, there is that empathic relationship and the child feels empathically met. And when that doesn't happen, there are negative consequences. And often that child may not be able to be empathic in return. Right? So, and then there's also the, uh, the healthy attachment depends on the parent being able to comfort and soothe the child when there's some sort of disturbance or problem, right? Again, this is, a, this is very much a matter of empathy. The parent knows that there is disturbance and can actually tune in and connect and the child feels met in that way. Do you see how so much of parenting is about empathy and when those qualities are not there, we have, we have a lack of empathy. And there, another aspect of healthy attachment is when there is... Um, Essentially, the parents have delight and with the, the child and the child's nature, which requires being able to see into what it is you know, and let that nature develop as it may. So what we can, what we can see is that um, empathy isn't always there, you know, I think before, I'm going to in a moment go to what stands in the way of empathy. But one thing that's interesting to, to see is just to look for yourself. What does it feel like when you are empathically met? You know, we all have our experiences of having people really meet us, have insight into what we're experiencing. We also have the opposite kinds of experiences, times when we were not met, when we were not seen, when we were not heard. What does it feel like when we are actually met, when, when someone really seems to hear us or know us? Maybe just one or two words, and I'll, I'll repeat them. Or maybe we could, do we have the mic handy? Yeah, does anyone like to say, what does it feel like when, you're, when, you, are, when you feel like someone has been empathic with you? Anyone want to share? Loved. Yeah. Okay. Validated. Let's wait for the mic. Um, Validated. Validated, yeah. Anyone else? Connected. Connected, yeah. I was going to say that. Uh, I was going to say not alone. Not alone. Connected, validated, maybe one or two more? Supported. Supported. 
safety to communicate. Safe to communicate, really. We could say safe to be vulnerable in a way. That's, I mean, because empathy is ultimately about showing, about being willing to show what's there. And of course, a lot of people can read what's there anyway. Um, here's what uh, the psychologist Carl Rogers said about uh, what it feels like to be met empathically. When someone really hears you without passing judgment on you, without trying to take responsibility for you, without trying to mold you, and here he's going to give a technical uh, psychological term, he says, it feels damn good. (laughs) (laughs) When I have been listened to and when I have been heard, I am able to re-perceive my world in a new way and to go on. It is astonishing how elements which seem insoluble become soluble when someone listens, how confusions which seem irremediable turn into relatively clear flowing streams when one is heard. And actually this capacity for empathy is, um, I've mentioned how significant it is for child rearing and for parenting and of course for relationships and for friendship, but it's also actually a key to peacemaking. You know, when I, I've studied a fair amount of, of conflict work, conflict transformation, and the capacity for empathy is right at the center of work as a peacemaker. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh says, bring the suffering of one side to the other and vice versa. And when you look to actually the training to become more skillful in working with, with uh, conflict, a lot of it is about empathy. And often it's about being able to know what is there in the emotions and what matters to the person and not be so confused by the positions and the judgments. And a a whole lot of static. A peacemaker has to kind of cut through the static. And I've experienced this. I've I've done uh, quite a number of mediations where I've been invited to kind of go in. And for me, it's, it's quite beautiful work and very intuitive and I kind of almost like uh, try to tune in to what's beneath the surface, what really matters for the person. And often I can feel where the actual solution is, which is often hard to see because initially, because there's so much static, resentment, problems, pain, judgment, positioning, etc. Right? And so a peacemaker has to be trained in empathy, and it's a key tool. For, for peacemakers. So what makes empathy hard? Or maybe, I, maybe I'll go back. What does it feel like not to be heard empathically? Maybe it's, maybe it's the opposite of everything we heard. Right? Alone, disconnected, not validated. Right. Anyone else want to add something? Frustrated. Frustrated. Yeah. Dismissed. What? Dismissed. Dismissed. Invisible. Invisible. Yeah. There's a there's a powerful reading which I want to give you. Uh, this is from this is from a book from quite a while ago. Um, Let's see where this is. (laughs) 
This is, this is from a book called Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Anyone know that book? And um, some of you may remember the beginning of the book. He, he's an African-American, and he was talking about how the lack of empathy was his daily experience. And he used the, the, the kind of the metaphor, if you will, of invisibility. And this is how the book begins. I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand simply, because people refuse to see me. This was written, I think, in the 1950s, around, around then. Like the... Uh, bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows. It is as though I have been surrounded by the mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, or they see only themselves, or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything other than me. That's living... And, and meeting a lack of empathy as a daily perpetual experience, right? So, so we have that sense of disconnection, aloneness, being dismissed, being not seen, being not met. Um, we might say that what we mo- most want in our lives is something like empathy, and we, what we most don't want is the lack of empathy, that would not be an exaggeration if we just if we looked at what we just looked at. Does that make some sense? So you can see it's a very crucial quality. So what gets in the way of empathy? Again, I want to invite you to maybe just say a sentence. You can use the mic again. What gets in the way of empathy? Let's use let's use the mic. Being self-focused. Being self-focused, right? Yeah. It might even get in the way of empathy towards oneself. Typically would, yeah. Uh, Fear. Fear. Maybe fear of losing jobs, livelihood. Fear of another person. That's big, you know. When you think of, um, you know, uh, political movements based on fear, that's very connected with lack of empathy, right? Deprivation and scarcity of resources. Deprivation, scarcity of resources, yeah. Assumptions, stereotypes. Um, Assumptions, stereotypes, right. Uh, Fitting people into some prefabricated framework without actually looking, maybe. And the story of self versus other, self and other. Yeah, creation of a self versus other boundary. So let me add to those. Those are all, those are all great. Um, and I'm, I'm doing this partly, um, many of you know, today is uh, Yom Kippur. Is anyone celebrating that today? Yeah. And I went to some ceremonies uh, last night. And um, the spirit of Yom Kippur, it's the holiest day of the year, as some of you know, and in, in the uh, Jewish understanding. And the uh, aim of Yom Kippur it comes at the end of 
you know, nine or ten days of renewal activities, but it's particularly to look at where one, in, in the language of the text, where one has missed the mark. We could say here, where you have fallen away from the heart or fallen away from empathy is one way we could, this would be part of it. And then you, you actually admit where you've um, gone off the mark, and then you make a commitment to be able to come back to your deep nature. And going off the mark is understood as losing um, touch or being disconnected from our deeper nature. And, very much, and empathy fits very much into it. When we're not empathic, we're actually not in, in, not in relationship to our basic inheritance and potential as human beings. And so we chronicle where we're off the mark. We see that, we admit that, and then we come back and say, I want to recommit to uh, being connected with my deeper nature. That's the essence of the holiday today. So it could be very much adopted by anyone, as they used to say about, uh, as a New York rye bread company used to say, you don't have to be Jewish <laughs> to follow the essential message of Yom Kippur. So as, as I can say, the essentially Buddhist meditation group. Okay. Um, so some other things that get in the way of empathy that, that I had. I, I had a list, and I think I have a list of about uh, like 10 different things, which I don't know if I'll go down the list, but I'll just mention them. I think one of them, you know, the, the loss of empathy, we could say, is the contraction of our basic loving nature, loving and caring nature for different reasons. Okay? And so I mentioned some of them could be due to uh, how we were brought up, child-rearing. Now, all of these things that get in the way can be overcome. And so these are not the fact that there are ways that empathy has been cut off, something we want to know, but we can, we can go in the other direction. I think that there's something about the um, very nature of our, how our lives are organized in this culture. I think busyness and distraction is a barrier to empathy. You know, and I was even thinking of, uh, you know, when you think of how meetings are conducted at most organizations, there's often total focus on getting objectives met and very little on process. Maybe like you, I've been at a lot of meetings where you could tell that someone was really hurt by something that came up in the meeting, and there's often zero attending to that. People just move on, right? And very little attention to process. And interestingly, I was part of, a, I was part of the board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship for 10 years. And we had our board meetings, and we gave a lot of attention to process. And in fact, when we had our monthly meetings, we would do check-ins with each other to see how we were doing. And some people said, these take so long. They're so... It's gonna, how are we going to get our work done? We had two-hour meetings. And we would sometimes have up to an hour check-ins for the meetings. And we would tune in and find out how people were doing. And I, my experience was that those check-ins and that connecting with others made the meetings incredibly efficient and also, in a way, very resonant. We had a sense of a group. It was a very interesting experience because I initially would have been one of those who would say, these take so long. These check-ins, can't we do them shorter? How about a one-word 
a one-sentence check-in. But we didn't do that. We took, we took usually 30, 40 minutes of that. And it actually, I think all of us had the sense that the meetings were more efficient. It was more empathy and resonance, right? But much of our organized life doesn't follow that model. You know, uh, there is a busyness. And I, I think of uh, one Tibetan teacher said, speaking of Westerners, he said, your laziness is your busyness. Mm. <laughs> Meaning that we use, the reason, we use the excuse of busyness not to attend to what's important. Does that make sense? Yeah. There's a focus on efficiency and so forth. Um, obviously, there's a lot of social conditioning that leads to a lack of empathy. Um, some of it's around gender. When they've done studies on empathy, they consistently find that men are less empathic than women. And it's hard to know all the reasons. Clearly, there's a certain amount of social conditioning. You know, we have a certain model of a man that's not related to empathy, and that's going to very much influence what happens. You know, and um, some psychologists find that actually there are elements of that which may not be entirely based on conditioning. Some speculate that generations and generations and thousands of years where women were primary caregivers tended to, um, what, select out from an evolutionary point of view for certain, for certain qualities. They sometimes have found that their women have more mirror neurons. That's interesting, isn't it? It may be for evolutionary reasons. We don't know exactly. Um, despite that being said, men can develop and be incredibly empathic. <laughs> I just want to reassure myself and <laughs> the, other, the other men here. Um, there's also, I think this is what you were referring to, there are also a stereotypes. One thing that is very, very common in relation to empathy is that we can sometimes be empathic within a narrow circle but when we go outside of that narrow circle, we're not empathic. You know? I've seen films of the family life of uh, the commanders at concentration camps in Germany having, you know, relating to their children. They seem to be quite empathic. But we know that if, it, if, if they were empathic, the empathy ended very soon after that they left that narrow circle. And People who've done research on implicit bias more or less make the same point, that most human beings have an inner circle where there might be empathy. And then when you go out beyond that circle, particularly to people who are stereotyped as other, this is your point really, that people who are seen as other typically don't get empathy. This is well documented in, in research on implicit bias. Someone who is seen as an other um, <clears throat> receives much less empathy, much less interest in what, <clears throat> what the person is experiencing and tends to be seen in a stereotypical way. Now, this is true with all the different social categories, race, gender, age, educational background, all of this. These are all filters that make empathy harder. <clears throat> and there are also areas that we can consciously work on. We can extend the circle. A lot of religious traditions have had the aim of bringing the heart 
to people who are, who are formerly outside the heart. We have the sense of loving the other. In Christian Jewish tradition, love the stranger is a term from Jewish tradition. In metta practice, in Buddhist practice, we have the sense of bringing the kind heart to all beings. So you have that aspiration there to do that. You know, I was also, I'll just mention one more barrier. I think there is often a selectivity in the media as to who is worthy of getting empathy. Do you know that? In other words, some people, I really remember after 9-11, the New York Times had every person who was known to be killed like had a, I don't know, a, a column on their, their life, all whatever, several thousand people. But you can see that other people are just nameless, you know, especially people from other countries, right? The, you know, so this is, this will point to this. This is one of the ways we can practice is to bring the circle of empathy uh, to be wider. Right? Okay, so let me, let me talk about um, a few practices that we can do. One of them is um, kind of the most basic empathy practice that I work with, and I got this from my colleague Oren Sofer, and this is a practice that you can do all the time, and he, he developed it from the discipline of nonviolent communication. Okay, this is a practice where you tune in. We've done this in the Wednesday group a few times, where you tune in to the emotions of the person and to the sense of what matters. In a sense, this is tuning in empathically to both the emotions and then what uh, in the research was called the, the thinking or the perspective of the person. So you tune into a sense of the emotion and what matters. We're going to do an experiment. I'm going to talk for a minute or two, and I'm going to invite you to be empathic for me. If you are successful, the beautiful energy that I get from this experience will carry me through for the next week. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to talk about, okay, so uh, I'm just going to talk for one or two minutes, and you're gonna, I'm going to invite you to tune in empathically and try to come up with three or four emotions you might hear and maybe one or two sense of what matters to me, okay? Clear enough? Now, by the way, this is something you can do all day long. You can also do it for yourself, okay? So um, last night I went to a gathering for Yom Kippur in Berkeley. I went with a friend. I saw a lot of people I hadn't seen for a while, and I hadn't been to one of these for a while. I'm not a deeply observant person of Jewish background. Um, but it was, there was a lot of playfulness, a lot of uh, delight. It was a lot of fun. There were, you know, there were work with candles, and um, there was singing and dancing, and... Uh, at one point, we went out under the stars and marveled in the nature of the universe, <laughs> looked at the stars and visualized being able to look down on ourselves from a long distance. Okay, so cut. So um, what were some of the emotions that you heard or felt? Please. Joy. Joy. Connection. Connection, yeah. Gratitude. What? Gratitude. Gratitude, Okay. Oh, yeah, with the stars, yeah. Okay, and I have to say that one of the nice things about doing this practice is I'm actually not completely aware of all the emotions that I actually have. And you're naming ones. I actually didn't realize all of them. Some of them, okay, yeah. But like all, you know, okay. Yeah, that's of course, but I didn't, have, I didn't think of that, right? And then 
how about, and it felt really good to be seen clearly, right? To be, how about um, what mattered for me? Connection. Connection, yeah. So in a sense we could say connection can be something like an emotion, but also what matters, right? What else? Tradition, yeah, yeah. Again, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, it was nice. This is uh, ancient; goes back several thousand years. Playfulness, huh? Playfulness, Playfulness right? Yeah. Community. Community. Yeah, yeah, it matters. Yeah, it's both an emotion and something that matters. Yeah. I sensed a little regret that you hadn't been doing this, you know, every year. So that that was maybe going back to emotion. Yeah, right. So um, those all felt really accurate, right? And it felt really good. So you get a sense of how you do that practice. You can do this watching a television show. You can do it without telling the person what they're feeling, which not everyone, <laughs> not everyone wants to you know, be mirrored back. But, um, you know, but the skillful use of resonating empathically with someone, it's, not, it's something maybe we can look at next week because we're not going to have time for that, how we, how we bring in some of these practices in our interactions. But um, this is more like a contemplative practice of tuning in, right? You get a sense of how to do it? Pretty simple, isn't it? You do this, uh, you do this 5, 10, 20, 30 minutes or do it a few times, 10 times during the day, it'll change your life, you know? because it's clearly something that can benefit. Now, I'm, I'll come in a moment to the challenges of this, because doing this, um, <clears throat> especially if you're verbalizing it, there, there are issues there about being vulnerable. You have to be skillful and so forth. You can make yourself completely vulnerable in an empathic way, and you get, you know, that happens, right? So we'll come back, we'll come back to that. <clears throat> um, so that's one practice, very, very basic practice. Um, another one... <clears throat> would be, um, <clears throat> maybe this is more a support for that, but it could be a, a practice in itself. Really cultivating interest and curiosity about another's experience. Going in really interested in what the other person is experiencing. Again, sometimes we do this naturally, but often we need the intention. Can you go in and really say, oh, what is this person's experience about? Can I say, I'm going to really come in with curiosity? You know, this is a being who, at the depths, is a Buddha. What's going on for the Buddha on October 12, 2016? You know, and have that sense of curiosity. <clears throat> Another practice could be <clears throat> to go beyond your usual boundaries and bring empathy <clears throat> beyond your usual boundaries. You know, um, we've been shown this. Remember when John went and worked with Syrian refugees? That was a profound experience of that, right? Developing empathy beyond your usual boundaries. And, you know, if you want to say a word about it when we go to discussion, but we had a presentation here and we had the sense of empathy. And you can see also um, what opens you up to empathy towards that suffering. And again, we get into issues that it can be feel like it's overwhelming sometimes, right? If I open up to empathy towards the suffering of the world, what's going to happen to me, right? And then again, maybe I'll deal more with that next time. Um, so we can extend our boundaries, go beyond a certain boundary. You can do this in all sorts of ways. It could be by reading. Read a novel about someone who's of a different gender 
a different ethnic group, you know, deliberately cultivate friends across the boundaries, you know, read the history, know the background. These are all tools for developing empathy that you can use. <clears throat> you know, and, and this has results. I remember <clears throat> um, when the Soviet Union fell, fell apart in 1991, I had just spent a month in the former Soviet Union and had a lot of friends. And um, do you remember at that time, it was 1991, and I, I had come back and I was uh, co-leading a summer institute for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. We had about 100 people there. And right during that institute was when we knew that the, I think, the reforms from Gorbachev were in, were in peril, right? That it, it was a possibility of going back to the old dictatorship. And um, I and some other people, we did a very um, simple ritual. I could feel myself moved in talking about it. We did a very simple ritual where we just asked for a silence and we um, named the people we know. We did that for 10 minutes. And it, um, it opened up that quality of empathy and, let, and invited others in, really. So there, that's a practice. This is uh, a man named Roman Kaznarek who, who lists six habits of highly empathic people. This is moving towards the closure where I'm talking about where empathy goes. Six habits of highly empathic people. You can either check out whether you have these habits or if not, choose whether you want to develop them. Okay, number one, talk with strangers. Have curiosity. Habit number two, challenge your prejudices and discover commonalities. Three, try another person's life. Number four, listen hard and open up. Number five, he says, inspire mass action and social change. <laughs> Number six, develop an ambitious imagination. Empathy is very connected with imagination. Yeah. Okay, let me just close uh, uh, with uh, one, or two, one or two quotes. Maybe just two, two quotes. Here, this is an expression, I believe, of a high degree of empathy. This is from uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous uh, Letters from a Birmingham Jail. And you may know this quotation. I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. That's a statement of empathy. And maybe I'll stop there. I think that's a nice way to stop. And <clears throat> let me invite just a moment of silence and then, and then see if there are comments or questions.
please. So we have, let's bring the mic up front. We can take some comments or questions. Okay. Do you discuss Tonglen as a practice um, that's connected to empathy and compassion? Yeah. Uh, there's a question about Tonglen, which is a Tibetan practice, which some of you know. It's been popularized a lot by Pema Chodron. How many of you know Tonglen practice? Um, it, it's uh, most basically, it might be to tune in let's say, to someone's suffering, and you breathe in the suffering, and you breathe out a kind of peace or relief. You know? I did this practice when my father was dying. I told him about it. He smiled. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's very real. These are all practices which can open up a sense of empathy, yeah, really to tune into another. Here we're this is why I, I'm, I was interpreting compassion practice in its receptive mode as essentially the same as empathy when there's distress. Yeah. So it's, it's a very good practice. It develops a lot of the same things. Compassion practice, meta practice, uh, empathy practice, I think really have a lot of parallel devel- developments. And Brian, please. Yeah, you touched briefly on uh, reading but there is interesting data on being literate yeah. in that uh, in Our Better Angels by Stephen Pinker. Pinter, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he traces the history of human violence over our 200,000-year history, and it was fairly dramatic, and there was this fairly marked drop-off at the time of the printing press. Hmm. As people started reading more, they became more empathic, hmm. and violence dropped. Hmm. And there was just recently a... Um, scientific study where they exposed people to various types of literature and then did theory of mind tests. Mm -hmm. And those who read literary fiction scored much higher Mm. as opposed to like reading romance novels. Yeah. So it's not only to read, but it is what we read. What you read, yeah. To build our empathy and it seems to train our mirror neurons to experience what we're reading. Yeah, yeah. I think seeing films, uh, reading, particularly where you kind of stretch your own boundaries where you learn about the inner and outer lives of other people. Yeah, so this could be, you know, I could say, go home and do your empathy practice. You'll just cuddle up with a good novel. <laughs> and you're saying, okay, I'm doing my spiritual practice. And I think, and I think what you're saying is it's real. It's part of it. Or read, read the history of an ethnic group that you don't know, you know or a novel related to that. These are all going to have an impact, yeah. Which makes it really scary what that Schwartz guy who wrote, uh, who you know, wrote the book with Trump said that Trump never reads books. Um, anyway, I digress. But so I had a story about my son is 20 years old and he's in Col- the country of Colombia, studying abroad for a semester, and um, he was walking with a friend at, at twilight, and this guy came and brought them. Um, made them go into a park and rip them off. And uh, so I was talking to my son about it, and I said, were you scared? And he said, yeah, a little bit. But he said, you know, and he lost a laptop and a phone. And Hmm. he said, but, you know, he probably needs it more than I do. Hmm. And I think in a way, that's a form of empathy. And and I, you know, I I appreciated that he, he saw it like that. I mean, that was one way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, And... Then also, I wanted to ask you about what you said about empathy having to do with the imagination, being mm. really involved with the imagination. I would almost think it would be opposite, that it would just be 
really seeing what that what was really happening um yeah. the, sort of almost like the facts rather than the imagination yeah, yeah. So I'm curious yeah. about that yeah so good question and i think your point earlier is very important it's something i think i'm going to bring in more next time uh you know particularly focusing on how you work with empathy where there's difference or conflict and if you read i, I brought in this book i was going to read one of these stories but, but didn't have time uh, Marshall Rosenberg's Nonviolent Communication has a nice chapter on empathy. He actually gives a number of pretty amazing stories of how empathy was used in pretty tense situations. I mean, he reports the ones where it worked, but, uh, but, but he reports some, there's some quite amazing stories of empathy actually defusing violence or defusing tension. But I'm going to bring it in a little bit more in terms of working different views. How do you do that? So I think it's a very, very important area. And uh, I think the main point is, um, you know, there are times if we don't feel safe enough that, you know, we have to reestablish that safety and may drop the act of being empathic. But in, as we practice more, we can bring the empathy into more and more situations, including ones where we formerly didn't feel so comfortable or safe, like different views, aggression coming at you, you know, even, even more extreme things. Now, yeah, in terms of the imagination, um, yeah, it's, it's good to clarify that, you know, what I, what I mean by that. Um, there's... Um, For, some, for something like feeling the emotions of someone, in that, like in the exercise I did, um, I think that's not going to involve the imagination so much. That's going to be more direct and felt. You know, that's going to like, be the mirror neurons working. Uh, for some, sometimes for something like uh, knowing the perspective of someone or the thinking of someone, that, this is maybe where imagination comes through in terms of curiosity and interest. You know, it's like, oh, what might be happening for that person? It's not like you go and think it out for five minutes or something, but you just maybe ask a question or two. What's happening for that person? And that can open up uh, a sense of imagination in, in the sense of, um, you know, uh, kind of being creative and open and fresh in terms of this person's experience. That's, that's I think, what I'm meaning more, that quality of not so much like you go and you know, have this fanciful imagination that's not based on actual experience. But there can be a way that we use the imagination. And I think probably most of you did it, particularly for that second aspect of what matters. That's, I think, where it comes in a little bit more. Yeah, does that make a little, some sense? Yeah, yeah. Maybe I can, I can do more with that. Because I think there is... But I think it's related to the qualities of um, curiosity, interest and sort of uh, bringing yourself into a situation. Now, you know, like when we're talking about literature, that's all about using the imagination for the purposes of empathy. That's right. It's going into, or think of being in a film. You're using your imagination, in a sense, to go into someone else's experience, but it resonates with yours. I would say that's the work of the imagination. So it's not in the sense of, you know, maybe we have to define the terms, right? It's not in the sense of just, you know, coming up with new ideas for the sake of, new ideas or projecting or something like that. Exactly, because that's the danger would be projecting. Like yeah, yeah, so it's, this isn't, I mean, there's going to be maybe some of that, but uh, we, we want that, but here it's more, 
It's more like a, the caring, non-projecting imagination, if I could say it like that. But I think more could be said about that. Um, okay, is there anyone who needed to have... We'll have one more, and then we'll finish. One of the we'll things finish. that struck me is when you were talking about 1991 and your experience yeah. and the mind-body. Yeah. I mean, I've been watching you talk, and being a nurse for so long, yeah. you know, the physical body... And it was almost like your color changed at the end. Yeah. You were red. It was like you were, it affected almost like your speech. It was That's like right. emotionally very charged for me, that experience you had in Russia, like connecting with you on a body level. Right, that you could, you know, uh, according to the science, when I was experiencing what I was experiencing, describing that experience... It was a fairly intense body experience, as you could tell. And you, t- you could tune into it. You could know something was happening, right? That's empathy, right? And, and maybe it moved you, you know, or it touched something in your own background or experience. And, you know, um, <clears throat> you know and I think part of what I try to uh, learn better to do as a uh, teacher, especially speaking, is to be able to go into that territory and more or less keep it together. <laughs> more or less. <laughs> you know, and be able to go there and for the sake of sharing or communicating. And, uh, you know, and really, it's really inviting, inviting us all, really. But, but yeah, you could, that was an experience of empathy, right? And we could know that. So, um, pretty amazing area, isn't it? And I think, I think it's part of our kind of emerging Western body of practice. You know? Don't have anything explicitly like this in Buddhist context, but it's very continuous, isn't it, with, with compassion, with loving kindness, with, even with mindfulness. So I think it's we're really kind of developing our own, uh, what, uh, toolkit, repertoire, and so forth. So um, how many of you would like to do some kind of empathy practice for the next week? You don't have to be, even if you're going back to Wisconsin or Seattle, you can still do it. <laughs> How many would like to do some empathy practice in the next week? Okay. Um, take a moment just to see which practice calls to you. I'll, I'll, remember, I'll recall the practices I've named. One is that simple tuning in to feelings and needs. And by the way, you can do that for yourself. If, for example, you felt like you haven't got empathy in a situation that was important to you, you can give yourself empathy. So saying like, oh, you were really feeling frustrated and you really wanted to be heard. Oh, didn't you? Yeah. And that actually has an effect. Right? Okay, so the first was the tuning into feelings and a sense of what mattered. A second related practice is really going into a conversation with a sense of interest and curiosity about the other person's experience. A third practice is deliberately going beyond your usual boundaries of empathy. Again, it could be in terms of location, gender, ethnicity, all sorts of boundaries, even time and history. So those are, those are three core practices. So see what appeals to you and how you might work with that in the next week.
And we close by remembering that we do this practice for ourselves, but very much also for others, especially these practices. And may our time here this morning be of benefit to ourselves, be a benefit to others, ultimately be a benefit to all beings, which includes us. So, thank you, and to be continued. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.